0: The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. Dr. Scott Pryor, who has been a faithful attendee at uh, National Convivia since 2014. Um, in my opinion, that's the most important thing on his TV. But he does have... Um, and, uh, I've learned a
1: lot. I've learned a great chairman, deal.
0: Chairman of the chairman of the board of the Davin Institute since...
1: Well, I'm... It, than you I'm yeah, that's there. it. Yeah, it's, it'll be six years next year, so you can do the math. It's really? yes, 2016. No. Yeah, I'm done. I'm oh, wow. done. I'm yeah, done. So if anybody wants to be on the board, the board then let there, know, let us know. Yeah. yeah. So
0: yes, he has uh, steered the ship... Uh, wonderfully for the last five, five five and a half years. Well, um, He is a professor at Campbell University Law School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Before that, he served for many years at uh, Regent University Law School in Virginia Beach. And he's taught in, I know you've taught in India quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I've been you know, over there for, the yeah, I've taught in, well, Korea, Handong yeah. Law School. I've taught in at a summer, American summer program in Strasbourg, France several times, so yeah. It's, it's been a good gig.
0: I first came across him, actually, an article you wrote on Calvin and, Calvin and natural
1: law, wasn't it? Yeah, Calvin's view of natural yeah. law. I wrote that back in the day. Can Puritanism contract law. I wrote on that, too. If anybody really wants to know what the truth is, there you go.
0: So, anyway, he has wide-ranging interests yeah. in the realm of law and theology, and so very natural choice for our, our keynote speaker. Yeah. So please join me in welcoming him.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I do. I thank you very much. Thank you, Brad, for the introduction, and you know, thanks to the Davenant Institute. Uh, you know, I to for for being the Davenant Institute. I'm really honored and grateful to have been on the board for a number of years now. And uh, because you know the the mission of Davenant, that is to retrieve the riches of the Protestant past and bring them forward to the present, is, is, is it's always necessary to learn from our forebears. But today in the world in which we find ourselves is particularly valuable to keep in mind that there were a lot of people before us who were really smart too and thought about a lot of the things that we think about and thought about them very deeply and have great resources. It's not that we follow them slavishly but rather we learn and we become wise for the life that we have today through what we did in the past or what people before us have done in the past. This presentation which is technically titled the virtue singular not virtues but the virtue singular of property uh, the virtue and vices plural of property began as a request at my uh, you know my church redeemer presbyterian church in raleigh north carolina to present on uh, one of the ten commandments we had a series of adult sunday school classes of the ten commandments and i said i said i'd like to do the eighth commandment thou shalt not steal because my professional life i teach contract law and if you didn't have property there wouldn't be much use for contract law. I mean you have to property as a foundational aspect of the world of contract and, uh, and I've never taught property law and uh, I did, just hadn't thought about it a lot so I said hey stealing involves property and hence I'd like to do the eighth commandment. They said fine and they would have no objection. So I started reading and it turned into you know for an adult Sunday school class a paper of about 20 pages. So I, you know, and I presented it, you know, in, in a forty-five minute adult Sunday school class. My presentation was was different than what I'm going to do here because there was an audience of people who didn't have any background in, you know, most of what I was going to be talking about here. You know, I know I do talk to people that don't know, you know a lot about some of the things, but certainly have much more background generally, both on the interpretation of Scripture and the church's use of Scripture and various notions throughout the course of the church's history to come to various teachings with respect to a whole variety of topics, including the commandment against theft. So the original title of this paper for the Sunday School class was Not Steal, which is pretty much a literal translation of the of the Eighth Commandment. It doesn't have all those fancy vowels and shouts. It just says, not steal. Very simple and straightforward commandment. But then the question I asked at the beginning here, which is on a couple of slides that I used for the class there is, well, why is that in the Eighth I mean, excuse me, why is that in the Ten Commandments? Is it like people never knew that before Moses' day? And assuming it was you know, somewhere in the you know, thirteenth century before Christ, this is the first time anybody ever heard of stealing and property? And the answer of course is no. People had known about property, people had known about theft, people had prescribed theft and had penalties for theft for thousands of years before Moses came on the scene before God's revelation of the Ten Commandments through Moses. So, so why? Why was it in the Ten Commandments? I mean, there's only ten of them. So why pick, of all of the basic rules of human life that people knew, why, why this one? Why you know, why take up the space of Ten Commandments? And the short answer, I, you know, doesn't say so in the Bible, is that it's important. <laughs> and that's why it's there. And it's particularly important for people coming out of slavery in Egypt where their ownership of property would have been limited. It's not as if they... Couldn't own property as slaves in Egypt, but that wasn't part of what they were doing. It wasn't part of what you do as a slave. And uh, it was also the case that they're going to be traveling across the Sinai in very close quarters and, you know, just borrowing something from your neighbor without having to mention it. You know, well, that, that could easily happen. And they're going to be going into the promised land where, in full obedience, there would have been a plethora of things and wealth created, and thus the protection against theft is basic to society, especially a basic to a free society. It's you know important even in a slave society, but it's even more important in a society of free people, and you just need to be reminded. I mean, all those of us who have been parents know that you have to tell your children the rules more than once, and thus God was repeating something that was vital and crucial to uh, you know, any kind of social organization. Now, okay, well that's fine. We have a rule against theft, But a rule against theft presumes that there's some notion of what property is behind the rule because if there's no property, then there's no theft. So what was property? And we don't have in the Old Testament or anywhere throughout the course of the Scriptures a well-described list of this is what property is or this is a definition of property which you can apply as time goes on. Rather, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Torah, we simply have examples of penalties uh, for judgments that had to do with theft, so we can infer from the penalties that exist you know what was property and it 's important to recognize here what wasn 't property and thus what we what I want to get at is you know what was property and when as much compensation be paid for interference with somebody else 's property and when and what is not property, and what may be interfered with by somebody else without having to pay compensation and this will give us a sense of what was the foundation of property in Old Testament Israel, at least in this period of the history of Old Testament Israel, things presumably developed over the course of the monarchy, especially by the late monarchy, where Israel had become a a more commercial society, but it was still primarily an agrarian world until after the captivity, and even then, for quite a while, it was still primarily based on a very small uh, organization of the economic activity of the life of ancient Israel. So with that, just a couple of A couple of judgments about theft here. I'm not going to go through all of them but I just want to illustrate some of them and speak about them in terms of as a lawyer might because well that's that's kind of what I am and to to illustrate from this analysis of some of these texts what we should know we should think about in terms of property. So here's one, Uh, whoever steals a man, that's right that's the one here, steals a man. So this first commandment against theft has to do with man stealing. Uh, it's in the first part of the book of the covenant following the Ten Commandments because the penalty for this one is death. So by and large, the book of the covenant, Exodus 22-24, to is arranged in descending orders of penalties, not conceptually in terms of the operative offense. But we see here, whoever steals a man, whether he sells him or is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So right away we see that we have something that can be characterized as a property in ourselves. People can't take us and make us, you know, do what we do not want to do without, you know, some kind of process by which we were found guilty of a crime or or enter into a contract with regard to services or the like. So, stealing a person. So, we have integrity in our body. So, this is very modern. I mean, we think about this today, it's nothing unusual. The penalty for kidnapping then, uh, death is higher than the penalty we usually impose for uh, theft of persons today, but nonetheless, it certainly makes clear how important it was to the people of ancient Israel, how important it was to God revealing himself through Moses, that you have an interest in yourself. Now that's not your only interest by any means, but you have to have an interest in yourself that can be protected by law in order to exercise the other virtues that we're going to talk about in connection with property. So uh so to go on to more ordinary sorts of theft and a couple of contrasting ones here from just a couple verses that in the next chapter. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, Query right there at the bay, what if you steal a donkey? Does that apply? Well, yes, but it doesn't say that. So right away when we get to the, any of this stuff, you recognize that these are not rules like modern uh, criminal law is, which defines everything in painstaking detail. I mean, the common law was more specified than this, but modern statutory versions of criminal law are hyper-particularized, hyper-defined. Everything has a defined term, and the definitions have definitions, and you're working way back, People didn't need this then. They could be able to make reasonable inferences about, okay, we have oxen and sheep, hmm, I guess you can steal a donkey? Well, no, of course not. Nobody would have thought that, they weren't stupid. But anyway, if a man steals an oxen or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. But, okay, no, I'll stop right there. So we see a penalty here, we see multiple penalties with respect to at least these two categories of important personal property. Notice the first is through here, that steals it, kills it or sells it, it's gone. So that's an important point to note here, that if theft, if you can't get it back, if it's irreversible, the penalties are much higher. Compare that to Exodus 22.4. If a stolen beast found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey, hmm, what about, oh, or a sheep, now we get all three of them. Just by way of example, this is not a precise legal code. This isn't like we think of law today as defining each and every term of a particular relationship. Rather, it's illustrative of the moral principle that was to be applied by the judges of the day. In any event, if it's found alive in his possession, he shall pay double. Well, why why, you know, why is killing it incur, you know, penalties that are substantially in excess of being found alive in his possession? Indeed, why is it double? even is found alive in his possession. Today, the tort of conversion says, well, you get your goods back. But we do have criminal law too, which imposes a penalty in addition to the civil penalty of restoration, imposes some kind of retributive justice, imprisonment, something like that. So we see here a com- combination in Israelite law of both you know, corrective justice, I get my stuff back, or the equivalent of my stuff back, and retributive justice. There has to be some kind of punishment involved with it too, because this is, in common terms, it's antisocial behavior. No society can exist long where theft is unpunished in any sense at all. But what about all the multiple punishments we see here, the multiple levels of uh, retribution that we see in Exodus 22.1? You know, the commentators, I mean, no one knows for sure, so we'll leave it at that. I, and you know, maybe it's my legal way of thinking about it, think these multiple represent what we would call in contract law anyway, consequential damages. If I lose an ox, which is extremely valuable for agricultural production in ancient Israel, I lose not only an ox, but I lose the offspring that that ox could later produce. I lose my animal that does the plowing for me. I lose the animal that does the threshing for me. This is a loss of more than a thing with a particular value. It's a loss of that thing and all the value it would generate for me going forward for some period of time. Thus, the higher level of penalty seems to be in recognition that this is an income-producing animal that is crucial to the life of an agricultural, in life of an agricultural society, where if it's found alive, well, I get it back. I haven't presumably been without it for too long, and, you know, I get back to work and all of that, and we give, uh, you know, both restoration, of course, and retribution in terms of a single additional penalty here of an additional value of an ox or an ox itself, as the case may be. I have a question here. Uh, We know if uh, the man steals an ox and sells it or kills it and sells it, that man is liable for multiple punishments. And we know if we find it alive in his possession, he has to give it back plus pay. What if it gets in the hand of a subsequent purchaser? After all, if I'm stealing an ox or a sheep, particularly a sheep, I'm probably not looking to keep it. I'm looking to fence it. I'm looking to sell it to somebody else, make the money and uh, you know get out of dodge if i'm a you know a rustler i'm not going to hang around very long what about on the buyer now i didn't know this sheep was stolen i mean the guy that sold it to me said it was his and i don't know if they had some kind of ear tagging or they, they may have had means by which to identify my sheep in distinction from your sheep and particularly an ox so you don't know about branding then but they might have done something a similar situation where you'd mark it with some way to identify it as yours but if it wasn't marked or if the seller said that is my mark and sells it to somebody else, what about that person? Does he have to give it back? Does he have to pay double? Does he have to pay quadruple or quintuple? Because he is found in possession of a stolen ox. The law doesn't tell us. It's absolutely silent there, it doesn't say what to do. So if you're an Israelite judge, you know, sitting at the gates and that's the case, what are you supposed to do? And the answer probably is, again, scripture doesn't tell us, but they're supposed to exercise some wisdom here. If you're an innocent purchaser, a bona fide fide purchaser for value, as we would say today, do you have to give it back? Probably. Do you get sanctioned additional penalties? Probably not. How do we know not? Why do I think that? Simply because it seems to make sense to me. No, because that's what exactly what the law of Hammurabi applied. And the law of Hammurabi came long before uh, the law given by God through Moses. So recognizing at this point my primary point is to say that there was already a common law of the ancient Near East and the law that we see with respect to property and many other things in the, in the in Torah are simply, you know, explications, adjustments, or repeals and changes of the law that everybody, you know, scare quotes there, but that everybody already knew. In other words, the natural law relating to living as an individual in a society and having to get along with other people was apparent to everybody and they generated a system of law and punishment that would deal with society as a whole. And by and large, law of Hammurabi is probably fine. That's why we have so few laws dealing with property and theft in Torah. And we often comment about, well, there are 613 laws in the Bible in, given to Moses. That's a lot. Hello? I mean, if I, I haven't counted up the rules that, sub, under which I'm subject as an employee of Campbell University. If I go through the employee handbook alone, plus everything else, there are probably 6,000 I'm just making a number up at random there, rules by which I am governed by as an employee, both contractual, local, state, and federal. 600 laws to regulate a society of millions of people is nothing, that's a drop in the bucket. It's not enough law at all. So, but that doesn't mean that's all the law there was. There's lots of other law out there that already everybody knew. It had to be adjusted and tweaked in some cases. In other cases, Hammurabi, or whoever it was, eh, that's fine. And a good example of that, I'm not just you know, making this up because I have to explain a gap in the Bible, are the litigation involving the first litigants under the Mosaic Code. The first litigants, the first people who brought a civil action under Moses' law were the unnamed daughters of Zephelahad, Zephelahad or Zelophehad. excuse me. They're Numbers 27 and Numbers 29. Read it sometime. These are, it's number one, it's women bringing the lawsuit. I think that's, that's significant they if they had a father or had a husband they would not have brought the lawsuit but they didn't have a father he died and they weren't married so what are they to do with respect to the land that they are supposed to inherit they looked at the law moses looked at the law and said you know i don't know it's not in here you have a gap we have a gap in the law that god revealed to us and land in ancient israel was obviously a special importance a special thing so what are we gonna do about it? Well, Moses said, I guess I'll go and ask God. And God gave him a rule to deal with this situation. Well, that's, so that's okay. Well, that's, that's a solution to the problem. God tells you what the rule is, but then they come back, they're not done. They come back and say, okay, we inherit. You know, if, you know, if our father dies and none of us are married, we inherit dad's land. But what if we get married? What if we get married to somebody outside our own tribe? What happens to the land then? And that comes before the judicial authorities today, Moses, Aaron, and the elders. And they say, they don't say, we're going to ask God about this one. They make the decision on their own. In other words, we see a process by which wise judges resolve unanticipated gaps in the law that has been given. And they say, okay, if you marry outside the tribe, then the land doesn't go with you because we don't want to mess up the tribal lands. So they thought with some prudential wisdom, okay. You know, inheritance of unmarried women is is important to recognize, but if they're married, well, then I guess it would go to that family in that tribe, but if it's outside the tribe, the relationship of the people of Israel to the land of Israel is so important that we can't let the land be transferred outside the tribal boundaries. You know, they're just thinking on the spot with wisdom and direction, but not direct revelation from God. So we see there that the Torah was never, in a sense, a law code. So if you're studying civil law or, which would be the case in Korea too for that matter. The civil law codes of Western Europe purport to be exhaustive. They address everything there is. There's no extra law out there. We don't have anything like that in the United States. We've always had a common law system, which we have codes embedded, but all of it has been the time that we look at cases in light of precedent and say, okay, what's the best solution to the problem that we may have never seen before? And that's how we handle it. We've delegated two judges in the Anglo-American common law system, a great deal of law-making or at least law-deriving and law-powering authority, much more than you would see the case in France or Germany or Korea or Japan or other places that do not have a common law approach to adjudication. The judges in the American legal system have a great deal more law-making power than other systems and in that respect, they are like the judges of ancient Israel who would have to be filling in the gaps on a regular basis as life became more complex and new problems arose within the people of Israel. Okay, well, that's about theft. What, is there anything else, property, that's kind of important? And I think a couple of things here. What about restitution? Now, those of you in the law school recognize, oh, this is a whole different topic in Anglo-American and civil law for that matter. So, civil law and contract, or excuse me, common law, organized to a certain extent between public law, constitutional law, Criminal law, administrative law, then private law, contracts, torts, dealing with personal injury, injury to property, and a neglected area in the common law system is the law of restitution. The law of restitution, which is a big field of law in, say, the civil law world, a smaller field of law here, but we see examples of what we would call today the law of restitution here in Torah. If a man cause, causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution. In other words, there's only a single thing here. It's no double, no quadruple, no quintuplicate. It's make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. So the point is that, you know, stuff happens. I mean, you know, your animal goes and grazes in somebody else's land. You shouldn't let that happen. You're taking somebody else's property for your use, but it's not the same as a theft. You didn't send your animal over there to do that. If you had, if that could be proven, presumably you would be exposed to the enhanced penalties that we see in the law. But if it just happens, well, it's still, you're using somebody else's property. You shouldn't get to use that for free. You should make restitution from, just in case you kind of accidentally, on purpose, let your beast graze over there. You have to make restitution for the best of your own field. We just want to add a little fill up here to make sure that people don't have happy accidents, if you will, and let your animal feed in somebody else's land. I mean. The scriptures are, you know, very realistic about the nature of, hum- of human nature. Human nature in society is, it. it doesn't change in some ways. And the positive duty of restoration goes to, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. The law finders, keepers, losers, weepers is not in the Bible, nor is it in the common law today. That's not the law. You have to give people their property back. Now, sometimes that gets very difficult. So we still see it today with respect to, art looted by the Nazis from uh, Jews during their time of occupation of Western Europe and you know all the major art has been found and given back to the families but not all of it there's still art today and then you have claims of countries like in the Middle East saying hey you you British you're Indiana Joneses of the world you came and took artifacts from our countries and you didn't pay for them we want them back you know British Museum well this this is a hot topic today and not only that what if somebody was enslaved for a number of years, value is taken from their life, their lives, generations of their lives in favor of an owner? Should that owner have made restitution? Yes. Should the descendants of that owner make restitution the descendants of the slaves? Well, if that's not a hot topic, I don't know what is. And I'm going to move right on from that one because <laughs> there are prudential reasons to cut off this right of restitution at some point. But we should start with the presumption that there is a right of restitution then we can talk about appropriate limits given passage of a lot of time and a a whole lot of other reasons. But I think it is appropriate to think about it in those terms. Okay, is that enough? No, there's one more from the... Oh, no, there's one more that I didn't put the slide up here, but that's I'll just mention to you quickly. Uh, The gleaning laws. So we've seen theft, you have to make restitution plus. Uh, Mere negligent uh, grazing, you have to make restitution only. What about the gleaning laws? You could actually go on somebody else's land, somebody else's property, and take what was theirs. In fact, they were commanded not to glean to the edges. They are commanded to leave some grain behind, some grapes behind, so that the poor of the land could go and get something to eat. So we see here a series of things that protect the idea of property, protect the notion of property, both in self and in external affairs, in a very significant way. From theft to restitution, to freedom to use in a very limited sense somebody else's property for your benefit without making any restitution at all because that is the nature of human society. It's not only about the individual. It's not not about the individual. I mean, man-stealing makes that clear. And it's not only about the individual's external relationship with objects, like you know, theft of property, on- donkeys, oxen, sheep, and presumably cars, etc. but rather it includes society in which the obligations of, the needs, excuse me, the needs of others are recognized in a way which impinges on a purely libertarian notion of property, a purely libertarian notion of property. Now, of course, that's then and there, which is a long time ago, in quite a different place, in quite a different economic life and organization, and we could go through more of the Old Testament scriptures, we could go through the New Testament scriptures. None of them answer the specific questions that I want to talk about, so we're not. Uh, But, you know, know, there's much more to be said. And read the paper. Some of it's in the paper. And I'm skipping a big chunk of the paper because I am. Mm -hmm. So, uh, fast forward a long way to Augustine. I mean, yeah, we're fast forwarding a long way from Moses to Augustine. A lot happened in between there. But we're talking about individual human relationships to themselves, to external means of, of human life, property, and how that fits together in a political so a political entity which is not Old Testament Israel so in other words the Roman Empire and we all know who Augustine is and you know he had a lot to say about property more than uh, he had a lot to say about a lot of things he was an extraordinary volume of you know correspondence and writings that have survived from Augustine so he uh, you know so what did he say about the phenomenon of property and it has nothing to do with Roman law in particular because at this point Roman law was sufficiently similar hours. It doesn't matter. The details don't matter here. So what does, uh, what does Augustine say about property? He wrote a letter that's been preserved, a letter to a Roman official uh, as follows. And I, uh, Augustine, it's in the From Irenaeus to Grotius source book. So I see it. I found it over there. It's there. So, so a Roman official wrote to Augustine, a Christian Roman official, saying, you know, what about, what am I doing here as an official in the government? And Augustine disquisites quite a bit on it. What is lawfully possessed is not another's property. That is an awkward way of saying, what's mine is mine. But lawfully means justly, and justly means rightly. Okay, what are you getting at? He who uses his wealth badly possesses it wrongfully. And wrongful possession means that it is another's property. Whoa. Money is wrongly possessed by bad men, while good men who love it least have the best right to it. In this life, the wrong of evil possessors is endured, and among them certain laws are established, which are called civil laws, not because they bring men to make a good use of their wealth, but because those who make bad use of it there become thereby become less injurious. So in Augustine's take, the foundation of property law was after the fall. So that's the question I'm asking here. I I think he's wrong about this, as we'll get to later, but uh, the question is, is property in our external relationships, mine and yours with respect to external affairs, something that is part of the created order like marriage? Or is it part of the fallen sinful world in which we find ourselves? Is it remedial or is it creational? And uh, Augustine says it's purely remedial. We live in a sinful world property law is unjust because it lets bad people, vicious people, keep whatever they have and does not give good people all that they need. On the other hand, he was quick to add here, the alternative is worse. So not having some kind of law protection of property, even when it protects the property of vicious evil men, is better than having no law of property at all in the sinful world in which we find ourselves. Property laws are unjust because they permit evil people to keep what they should have, excuse me, property laws are unjust because they permit evil people to keep what they should share. Laws protecting private property are unjust because they do not further the right ordering of love. Such laws are nonetheless permitted because life would even be worse without them. Well, that's a pretty backhanded justification of property and property law. So again, I'm reading from my paper at this point, so I want to say it like I said it. In a just world, property would be the means to the just end, the communication of goods among all as each had need. In this unjust world, property law prevents some of the worst injustices, like theft, but permits other injustices, like hoarding, and does not even concern itself with a vice, like greed. On the other hand, even unjust property law permits just individuals to act justly. Property law permits Christians to share their goods Civil governments and property law are simultaneously a result of sin and a means of restraining sin. So Augustine finds the whole root of civil authority and law post-fall in the sinful order in which we have ourselves. Okay, that was his take on it, and that was was not unknown thereafter. It was the Franciscans probably generally followed along that line, but not Thomas Aquinas. So we're jumping forward from Moses to Augustine, now to Thomas and even though Thomas was theologically indebted to Augustine, he clearly was, much of what he did was a scholastic retreatment of what Augustine had said, you know, 800 years earlier, he disagreed with Augustine about property. Thomas argued that private property was legitimate from creation, and not merely a concession to the effects of the fall. He offered three reasons for his conclusion. Now, I'm going to be reading from the Summa, which, it's reading from the Summa, I will do an explanation later. And here's reasons why. Why is property creational in its foundation? First, because every man is more careful to procure what is for himself alone than that which is common to many or to all. Since each one would shirk the labor and leave to another that which concerns the community, as happens where there is a great number of servants. Large organizations, they know that. Shirking is a huge problem with large corporate organizations because it's somebody else's job and you, you, it's hard to measure productivity down to the individual level. Now they're getting better at it by monitoring everything we do, but that's the price. Secondly, that's his first reason. If we didn't have our own property to take care of we would be, and it all belonged in common, we would shirk. And I mean, obviously all the communist systems have seen this happen. Secondly, because human affairs are conducted in more orderly fashion if each man is charged with taking care of some particular thing himself, whereas there would be confusion if everyone had to look after any one thing indeterminately. In other words, you don't want to wake up every morning and redecide who owns what and who's going to take care of it. Hello, just have it once for all until it's conveyed. We know what's ours. Thirdly, because a more peaceful state is ensured to, to man if each one is contented with his own. Hence, it is to be observed that quarrels arise more frequently where there is no division of the things possessed, at least outside of very small communities. There are small communities, I think, the Hutterites among them where, from what I understand, there is reasonably good relationships, but they're very small, very intense Anabaptist communities where you can own everything in common, but because it's very small and very tight. Once you go beyond that, it doesn't work. I'll take Thomas's three justifications for property in reverse order. His third reason for property tracks with Augustine's sin-centered rationale. Because sinful humans tend to quarrel, property helps reduce the scope of quarreling by identifying what's mine and what's yours. In turn, property law provides a system which disputes about mine and yours can be resolved. Uh, Thomas's second reason acknowledged the limits of what it means to be human. Even without sin, human beings do not have unlimited time or complete knowledge. If we do not have some system of property, Human beings would have to start every morning by figuring out who is to care for what. With the system of property, however, each person knows where to start. As Mary Hirschfeld argues in a very good very good book, Aquinas and the Market Toward a Humane Economy, it's highly recommended. Uh, as Mary Hirschfeld puts it, by assigning property, we properly match a finite person with a finite piece of the collective work that is to be done. Practical identification of mine and yours would have been necessary even if no one had sinful inclinations. That's my line they are not hers. Thomas's first reason is more subtle. And this is, this, follow along, see if you believe me. This is, a, you can challenge this one. When it comes to the order of loves, all Christians understand the love of God comes first. But what should be the order of love when it comes to loving ourselves and loving our neighbors? What's the order of those loves? In a fallen world, we know who comes first, for most people, most of the time, themselves. Okay, yeah, obviously. But what would have been the order of loves if there were no sin? Thomas says it still would have been ourselves and only then our neighbors. Hirschfeld elaborates Thomas's argument. As Aquinas makes clear in his treatise on charity, our love of ourselves is right, rightly takes precedence over our love of our neighbors. This claim only makes sense if we begin with the observation that our first love is the love of God, who is the cause of all happiness. Were we to bypass ourselves to love other creatures more than ourselves, we would be bypassing our direct point of contact with the supreme good, which is God. In doing so, we would undercut the proper basis of our love for our neighbor, which is that they are fellows in that good, that is the love of God. So, it's God, ourselves, because we have contact with God in ourselves, and then it's our neighbors. Even apart from sin, we would have to be aware of our relationship with God before we could even be aware of and take into account our love of our neighbors. There are two reasons why the ordering of self before love of neighbors is not sinful. First, we have a duty to maintain our lives and the lives of those in our charge, children for example, and it's wrong to hurt ourselves. Second, in a world without sin, we would never want to keep more for ourselves than what is necessary. This should be the state of affairs among Christians, even in our fallen world, you know, readily. Uh, many Christians desire to keep more property than is reasonably necessary. Not only does greed wrong others whom we could help, <coughs> it harms ourselves. As Hirschfield explains, a person who overconsumes in a world where many suffer the deprivations of deep poverty is not exercising self-interest at the expense of altruism. She is acting against her own interests and harming her neighbor at the same time. Well, Hirschville's Catholic. What about the Westminster Larger Catechism? Let's cut to the chase here. Uh, oh, it concurs. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. So our abilities and the necessities of others. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. I'll come back to the confession. I, yeah, I did, but I'm, it's out of order. No. Okay, This is. i will got to get back to that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. ignore that question because it's a great question that I don't on that one. I have a slide which will do compare and contrast in the Westminster stuff. But let's, maybe I was jumping ahead. Okay, if we went from Moses to Augustine to Aquinas, I'm skipping Melanchthon who was pretty Augustinian, to John Calvin who's more uh, Thomistic. Uh, Calvin developed a bi-directional nature of property. There's a lot of stuff here and some of it I have quoted up there um, it just I don't want to read it all simply because it gets rather lengthy so let me skip over the next slide and uh, have these two and these two only I think this is the first one so this is Calvin we must bear in mind also that an affirmative precept as it's called is connected with this prohibition prohibition against theft because even if we refrain from all wrongdoing We do not thereby satisfy God who has laid mankind under mutual obligation to each other, that they may seek to benefit, care for, and succor their neighbors. Hence, in order that we may not be condemned as thieves, we must endeavor as far as possible that everyone should safely keep what he possesses and that our neighbor's advantage should be promoted no less than our own. The outward direction of the commandment against theft occupies a significant part of what Calvin writes about, but he writes more. Since God has ordained this give and take among us so that no one can do without the help of his neighbors, we are also obliged to them in turn. Everyone must look to his own ability and resources and to the graces he has received. Why? So that he may serve others, just as he must receive from them. What then is necessary? It is not enough that my neighbors serve me, for God did not only create them for me, I must also equip myself for myself for my part, knowing that I was also created for them. Let me offer myself and ask only to provide what I have received, so that there may be a reciprocal duty as our Lord has commanded. This is what we must do. So, a very firm, virtue-centered notion of property. Property exists so that we may meet our own needs, of course. And equally so that, once our needs have been met, so you can put it in this priority, so that we may meet the needs of others. And again, there's more quotes from Calvin there that are uh, helpful. If you read the paper, you can see them. Well, let me go back to this, because... Back to this. And this should have been earlier, but it's now. Uh, Sorry for reordering them a little bit out of what would have been the best order. But what's the Westminster Confession have to say about the use of Torah? Because... Uh, Calvin at this point will cite the scriptures and obviously the Westminster larger catechism cites the scriptures to what extent is it legitimate to what extent in the Westminster understanding is legitimate to appeal to all aspects of the Old Testament law that is the moral law the Ten Commandments the judicial laws and the ceremonial laws and I want to emphasize some things that I you know, kind of came to my mind or I recognized in a way I hadn't seen before So we'll start with Westminster Confession 19, paragraph 4. We'll start with 4. To them also, ancient Israel, as a body politic, God gave sundry judicial laws. Those are the ones that I read basically having to do with theft and the like. Those are examples of judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof. The general equity thereof may require. Okay. So the judicials, as they are so called, do not apply as such to us, but the general equity that stands behind them is applicable in every time and place, coming to expression differently, different times and different places, but they have a, uh, a obligation, they lay an obligation upon even us today, post uh, the nation of Israel. But what about the ceremonial laws? That I would characterize, would include a lot of the stuff having to do with the land laws, the right of redemption and all that, those seem to be tied to ancient Israel's relationship with the land, which is nowhere else and nowhere after reproduced. Are those of any significance to us today? Besides this, paragraph 3, covenant of works with Adam, commonly called moral, that's what we reproduce the Ten Commandments, God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings and benefits, and partly holding their holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Wait a second, the laws are abrogated, but they are instructive with regard to moral duties. So there's no part of the Old Testament law that is irrelevant. It has to be understood in a way that takes account of how it worked in the life of Old Testament Israel, which is different, of course, than the way it works for us here and now, but all of it is relevant. Now, it's very difficult to just jump from there and then to here and now. But let's see what the Westminster divines did when they get to the larger catechism. Here we go. I took the trouble to reframe the Westminster larger catechism's questions and answers, 141 and 142, in two tables. Two tables having to do with virtue that is the end purpose or goal for which we use our external uh, ownership of things, and vices. What's the opposite? What are the bad ways of using property? And uh, so the basic virtue that the drafters of the Westminster Larger Catechism mentioned with respect to property is a moderation of judgment, will, and affections with regard to property. Contrary vices are coveting and envies, envying other people's prosperity and inordinate prizing of worldly goods. And you can look through the table here. I think I, yeah, I squeezed them all on there. It's hard to read. They're more length than the paper itself. And I tried to say, here's the virtues the, what, and what would be the uses of property by individuals. So displaying faithfulness and justice in contracts. Faithfulness and justice. I have a book chapter written on that second word. What is justice in contracts? Faithfulness we know. Yeah, If you promise to do something, do it. That's faithfulness in contracts. But what's justice in contracts? Well, until Adam Smith, maybe, we everybody knew what justice and contracts was. Equality and exchange, commutative justice. We should not sell for something for more than it's worth, nor should we be tricked into buying something for more than it's worth. That was part of the moral fabric of Christianity from Old Testament Israel through ancient times, through medieval reformation and early modern times. The idea of justice and contract, commutative justice, in Aristotle's expression, was part and parcel of Christian Christian ethics. Today, it's it's not, and it's very difficult to to restore that. Uh, Doctrine on Consciousness and Contracts kinda sorta gets at that, but not very well. Okay, putting that aside, uh, other virtues, making restitution, what is not ours, giving and lending freely, Care instead of getting, using, and disposing of property. Don't treat it carelessly. God's entrusted it to you and his providence. Use it well. Pursuing a lawful calling. Don't be lazy, you nobility of ancient England. Doing nothing at all except gambling. Uh, practicing frugality. Okay, well that's that's pretty reformed. Advancing wealth of others and ourselves. Secondly, ourselves. And what are some vices? Theft and robbery, fraud, of course. Man-sealing, of course. They repeat it, though. Injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts, oppression harkening back to Leviticus nineteen which i didn 't read uh, unjust enclosures does anybody take when they you know if you're a, you 're coming up being ordained as a pastor you know and a minister in the PCA or OPC for that matter does anybody ever ask you about the prohibition any on the unjust enclosures? does anybody even know what that 's about? Very few people today know what that 's about, and it let me tell you what it 's about because up until the end of the War of the Roses, you know, most land in in England was owned by you know nobility, royalty, nobility, lesser nobility. There was relative, there was some private property in the sense that we understand, particularly London, the big city, and all of that. But property is held in a feudal land tenure system. And where were people employed? Well, on the on the farm, that is the noble's farm, sub all the way down. Everybody worked their own land and some public land that was provided for this, so you could pay the. Uh, the person up the chain, if you will, in ownership and feudal system. Well, War of the Roses pretty well wiped out the nobility. And finally, when the the Tudors took over Henry VII, it was a great time to redistribute the land because all the previous people on the wrong side of the War of the Roses were dead. Take their land, we reorganize everything, and these new nobles coming in and taking over the land said, you know, this whole feudal system, that's pretty darn inefficient. You know, global commerce and trade, globalization is already taking place. You know, we can raise a lot of sheep on this land and sell that wool over to Bruges, and the Flanders have it made into fine fabrics, send it back here. You know, we want globalization, well, Europeanization, if you will. So we don't need all of these uh, peasants on our land anymore, so we're going to enclose the land. We're going to force people off the land who have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, who didn't have a deed, they may have been copy deeds, you can get into some details about that, but the deeds they had, the ownership they had, was simply with respect to that use of that land, and they you know, kicked them off. That was going for a long time. In fact, I, had, I would have thought it was largely over by the middle of the 17th century, but I was wrong about that. There were still areas of feudal inf- ownership of land in the northwest of England well into the 18th century. So we often speak of the Scots-Irish coming to America. Most of them weren't. They didn't go from Scotland to Ireland to here. Most were from Northwest England or Southwest Scotland, some of whom parked in Ireland before they came here, but most Mm -hmm. of them who had lived in a still feudal system and were being enclosed off the land even into the 18th century. And thus they came over here. Uh, At that point in time, they were the last of the people groups from England to come to America. And uh, so this this was still going on and the Westminster Divine said this is unjust. This is a vice, unlawful enclosing and forcing people off the land of which they had use, but no title was simply wrong. Unnecessary lawsuits, if there ever would be such a thing, yeah, that's a vice, and that we heard about earlier on. Not necessarily much unnecessary lawsuits, but handling lawsuits, and they would have agreed with uh, Dean Enlow's comments about the right manner of litigation, uh, distrust, distrustful and distracting study to get, keep, and use property. On the one hand, we have to have care and study of getting, using, and disposing of property. On the other hand, there is distrustful and distracting study to get, keep, and use property. These are virtues and vices. They're not rules. So what? An, uh, it's very difficult to say that someone is appropriately caring for property and, in other words, alternatively engaging in a distracting study to get and keep property. I think we know it and we see it, and it's always in somebody else, so we know that too. Uh, Pursuing a lawful calling, that's a virtue. Idleness is a vice. Uh, Frugality is a virtue. Prodigality and wasteful gambling is a vice. Again, gambling was a big deal, especially among the upper classes in England. Uh, I mean, it's always been a deal, but that's where they saw it because those people didn't have to work for a living, so what are you gonna do? Entertain yourself by gambling. Led a lot of litigation, Jansen's case, we can talk about that. Defrauding ourselves of due use and comfort of what God has given us, hey. We deserve, I mean, something, we deserve due use and comfort. Is that a rule? No, it's a standard. If you law talk, it's a standard, not a rule. So an approach to the totality of the larger catechism's framework could be expressed in terms of the virtue of liberality. As with all the virtues, the virtue of liberality is flanked by two equal and opposite vices. In the case of liberality, avarice, greed, and carelessness are the two relevant vices. Heidelberg Catechism is actually a little bit clearer on this, where it asks the question, what does God require of us in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. An example of the twin vices, I'll skip that from the Bible. Uh, Rebecca de Young uh, has written a, a very good book too, Glittering Vices, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins and Their Remedies. Uh, she's written a more user-friendly version of it more recently, I find her book very helpful. Avarice is being attached to money and possessions, caring too much about them. Liberality is also opposed to carelessness about the real value of things and responsibility for them, which is the vice of prodigality. Since virtues are interior matters of the heart, there is no way to put a number or percentage on what constitutes liberality. De Jong elaborates, liberal or generous people are defined primarily in terms of their inner detachment from material wealth or goods, just as we have an inner detachment from the success or failure of litigation in which we engage. We engage in litigation because we are pursuing justice, but we leave it to the magistrate and ultimately to God to see that justice is done. And if it isn't done, well, we rejoice because we are suffering the oppression, that we are filling up the uh, sufferings of Christ. And if we prevail, we should be pleased that God's justice has been done. The same is true even before we get to litigation. The same is true with respect to our own relationship to material wealth. Liberal or generous people may care about their possessions, but they do not have an immoderate love of possessing them. There is a rule or limit to what they want to acquire and what they need to retain for themselves. The generous are thus ready to give with pleasure when and where they ought, 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. Well, that's, I think, and that's as far as we can go with describing the virtues and vices, application of course is very difficult and seeing it in ourselves is extremely difficult, which is why we need a community, we need to be part of a community where we have people that can we can share with. And when I lived in Wisconsin, just before I left Wisconsin, I was practicing law there and we happened to be at church with our six lawyers and a lot of very successful business people, like very successful business They're all Dutch, so yes they're very successful <laughs> business people and you, I could see literally, I mean you know, descriptively visiting, and we had a men's prayer breakfast. And Milt Kyers, who, if you, there's a Kyers Institute of Education now at Calvin University, that's his money. He was a very, very wealthy man. Lived in a three bedroom home, very nice home, but it was a three bedroom home. And he gave away enormous amounts of money. But what he did, even more importantly than that, he would invest in businesses. He had the he had the gift of making businesses profitable. I mean, he would find businesses in distress. He could read the financial statements, and they would tell him a story. Now that's, that's a gift. And he would buy the business, and then he would make it successful. And he would use that as a means of giving people jobs, and very directly so in certain parts of Milwaukee, a very segregated city. Uh, he said, well, make sure we hire you know African-Americans. And he would have shop foreman come to him and say, well, these, these guys just aren't working out. They don't work hard enough. They don't know what they're doing. And Milt's comment to them was, well, you better hope you can teach him that, or you're gonna lose your job. So he put the burden on his own employees who had the experience, knowledge, and ability to bring people who had not had a background in the wage economy, in the skills, to bring them along. Well, that's a way of using wealth that's exceptional. And I give enormous credit to him. But they were also starting a group there where those who were more successful would actually meet with each other and be willing to disclose how much money they were making and hold each other accountable. In terms of what they're making, what they're giving away, now I moved away just in time. I didn't participate in that, and uh, but that—that's what it takes, and that's really, really hard. I mean, do we want to give our, you know, our ten forties to our deacons? Well, maybe we should. Maybe we should, and be willing. And you know, I, I, for example, our church—I trust our deacons. I mean, that very much so. I mean, they have a range of incomes among them. There, some are very successful also in business, and others just working stiffs. I would trust them to, to do this. Now, I'm not, I haven't volunteered to do that with them, though. So I can talk big, but uh, see what I actually do. Okay, where are we nowadays? Okay, so if this frames an understanding of property in terms of the virtue of liberality, what, what frames the understanding of property here and now? Well, since the 18th century, uh, property ownership has become an ever more central place in human self-constitution and political order property is a natural right. It's not a means by which virtue is exercised. It's a natural right. The Lockean conception of property had two features. First, property provides a zone of security. The well-known proverb of a man's home as his castle speaks to the sense of psychological and physical security that ownership of the land can provide. Second, property ownership assumes priority in the social imaginary, Charles Taylor, because it enables the pursuit of deeply valued life projects. So contract theory, if you're interested today, there are a couple leading theories of contract law which are relevant here. The first is uh, efficiency. Contract law is neoclassical economics and we we're looking to increase net social welfare and whatever rules do that are good. The other approach to contract theory and overlaps significantly with property as well is personal sovereignty. It's, it's, it's sort of, they claim to be Kantian but Kant would not recognize them. but the any any Point of, point of property is so I can pursue my life projects. I can be all that I can be. Now, I can't be that without others, of course, so we have to have interchange, we have to have contracts and all of that, but the whole point of it is simply to let me become all I can be because, you know, with no God in the universe, well, I guess what else could there be, but I become all I can be. Many people today do not understand property as equally self- and other-oriented and said property is principally a means of security and self-fulfillment. This recentering is not merely a result of legitimate security that land ownership provides or wealth we have today in digital form or other forms. That's that's all fine, but it becomes problematic when it becomes ever more central to our self-understanding. In this secularized view, the state not only ought to facilitate property ownership, but it ought also to provide for a property law that gives owners space to use their property as they see fit, following... Contemporary political philosopher Joseph Ross and John Rawls' property is about, quote, becoming the author of one's own life, end quote, and quote, recognizing the fundamental right of individuals to choose, revise, and pursue their own system of ends, end quote. Andrew Gold, whose work I like in many respects has recently put it this way, private law property contracts, gives individuals room for a variety of largely unfettered choices, irrespective of the effects those choices will have on their own overall well-being and the well-being of others. In the process, it opens up space for what individuals find meaningful on an individual basis, end quote. Few today understand private property as an occasion for stewardship on behalf of its ultimate owner, God, and for the benefit of our neighbors. And last paragraph. It is not surprising that a sense of property enabled pursuit of personal fulfillment coupled with unequal distributions of property leads to the opposite desire to redistribute property. If we need property to be all that we can be, then we all need property. A society in which many are fixated on private property can lead to reactions that either expand the scope of public property at the expense of of private property, socialism, or taxes private property owners for the benefit of non-owners, social democracy. The two historic forms of thinking about property in the Christian West, protection of a providential ordering of the distribution of goods and Belief that private property exists for the common good have nearly evaporated. On that happy note, uh, I'll entertain any questions that anyone might have. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's great. It's a great reason. Why doesn't anybody read the Westminster Larger Catechism? I want to know. Because it's just chock full. It's such a good organization and it's very Catholic in the small c Catholic. Nothing that's in there. I mean, Thomas would have said, Thomas Aquinas, yeah, that makes sense. It's just, it's within the the, the Western Christian tradition which draws heavily on Aristotle but reforms them significantly, draws heavily on the Bible, of course, Draws heavily on the scholastic method of filling in gaps, which we see already that had to be used deployed in connection with Torah, and awareness of the historical quiddities, if you will, of where you are and when you are. Because Calvin, for example, thought that natural law applies to everyone, but what he called equity, natural equity, eikotas, epikeia, that was that was unique. That applied specifically to particular place and particular times. So it's going to play out differently in England, in. Uh, Geneva or in Italy. It's just going to play out differently, but the fundamental principles are already there, but we apply them appropriately. But if we don't have an idea of what the principles are, that is the goals, the ends of property, stewardship on behalf of ourselves to serve others, then becomes detached and becomes what we have today. Oh, I was going to avoid the question. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) productive no not financially because that limits because there's plenty of non-financial activities in which we should engage so i mean, diaconal service generally and there's no financial reward for that and i mean we all should be serving other people our neighbors as so we have to make use of our financial resources but also our temporal resources as long as we're alive on earth we have an obligation to use you know things to protect ourselves build up ourselves our immediate family but then not stop there so you know how many vacations? How far should we travel on vacations? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, those are. I mean, we have to talk about it. I mean, I, there's no. These are not rule based things. These are virtue principle issues that have to be discussed honestly. Honestly, and it's very hard. I mean, I mean, we as people have said in the past. We more frequently talk about our sex lives. Than we do about our money, and I mean, one is appropriate for personal, private discussion only. <laughs> in one, but we have them exactly backwards. Yep, over here. Clifford. So, our, our Lord elaborates
0: um, in the Sermon on the Mount on mm-hmm. 6 and 7, right? Murder mm-hmm. sort of adultery. Mm-hmm. He doesn't uh, talk about this one, but it occurs to me that the 10th commandment seems to be in the same spirit of yeah. interpretation of what does it mean to steal, well, even to covet yeah. the property. It's the. I wonder Mm-hmm. complains about how why it's considered property in the 10th uh, and I'm wondering what do you think of
1: that well two things one I have not thought about that I mean that's a great question that is the 10th commandment which is sort of the catch all heart oriented mm-hmm. thing just to keep people from Israel from misunderstanding this as a legal code you know that sure you know adult murder adultery theft I mean we could understand those as purely external they shouldn't have been, but they could have been. Well, the 10th commandment jerks that back. No, you can't understand them as purely external. So then the relationship of women in ancient Israel, you know, is, is women in ancient Israel is a different time and place and culture. And until, in fact, the middle of the 19th century, married women could not own property in, in America or even in England, for that matter, unless you had a marriage settlement. And you, that if you came into a marriage with money from dad or from husband number one, You have basically what we today call prenup. So that could be done, but otherwise a married woman could not own private property, personal property. It was under coverture, the doctrine of coverture, under the cover, if you will, of her husband. Well, that works if you have men who are virtuous. That works okay. But to get back to the specific question, it was never the case that women in the Old Testament understanding, which again, you know, different time, place, and culture. i take that, were ever understood as property. You couldn't sell them. And uh, you just couldn't do that. I and mean, so, and the one often that's used as an example, well, yes, you could, that's something called, it's translated in many English Bibles as the bride price. The mohar is the Hebrew word, and that's wrong. It's wrong to understand that as a bride price. You're not selling your daughter off to make money. Rather, you expect hubs to be, hey, guy, do you got a job? Do you got any money? I mean, are you just, are you a slacker hanging around, or can you, and you would pay a bride price to dad, do two things, demonstrate that future husband is not a ne'er-do-well, and dad was supposed to hold that money, property, you know, animals, in a segregated account, if you will, on back on the farm, as divorce insurance. And, uh, or widowhood without you know remarriage insurance, because it was very difficult to a woman to marry a second time in that time and culture. So she would have some resources in which to live were the first marriage to end to end. So, and it's really regrettable to me that, and that's that's part of Islam too, pay the bride price. It's not dowry. It's the opposite of dowry. The woman doesn't bring it in. The man gives it to dad in order for these, I think, two legitimate purposes. And that's part of Islam. In India today, everybody pays dowry. Christians, Muslims, and Hindus. Okay, Hindus, I don't care, they, they don't know any better. But as part of Christianity, if you look at the Old Testament law, that you do not pay dowry, you pay the bride price. And as part of Islam too, but everybody over there pays the bride, excuse me, pays uh, dowry notwithstanding. So that's really a, it's a seriously problematic social problem in India today, just FYI. It also leads to uh, sex-selective abortions because why do you want uh, these expensive daughters? which then leads to big problems, you know, like 18 years down the road when there are not enough brides to go around. So it's a serious social problem, in India is aware of it and they're working against it, but it's partly so deeply cultural with a notion of dowry that it's, unless you get rid of the notion of dowry, you can't, it's very hard to eliminate sex-selective abortions. Brad? Um,
0: So this idea of uh, there being uh, equal Equal obligations not to take the property of another and also to um, advance the state of your mm-hmm. right, property. Many conservatives would argue that these, these duties are asymmetric. The one are duties of justice, mm-hmm. the other of charity. You have a duty of justice to abstain from theft, and you have duties of charity mm-hmm. to aid your neighbor with your property. And so the argument would be something like the gleaning law. Is not really a law in the same sense. It's just a sort of uh, it's a moral admonition, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't in no way be enforceable. Now, my counter-argument to that would be twofold. That uh, often that argument proceeds on a, a very kind of theonomic reading of that if something isn't specified in the text, then um, it couldn't have been practiced in, in ancient Israel. So if there's no penalty, they say. Mm -hmm. Only laws that have a penalty given actually were enforced, and if there's no penalty given, they're enforced. You've already made the case. Obviously, these are case laws. There are lots of gaps to be filled in. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, it assumes um, the modern bundling of um, dominion and use, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. you could, in many older legal systems, you could have a property, a use right.
1: Yes, use of right.
0: Yeah, there was youth that was legally enforceable. And it seems like the gleaning is that, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Is yeah, I thought, I think it'd be legally enforceable. I mean, I went and gleaned and the property owner came out with a stick and drove me off. I could go to the judges and say, do something about this dude.
0: So then, the, so yeah, that's, that's, that's how I've read that. But the question then is, um, so then is the gleaning law basically a foundation, for, a legal foundation for something like welfare? Like our welfare system is a, sort of a legal... Re- Legally
1: requiring people to, you know, allow gleaning, but the government still. It. Yeah, I mean, important. and, uh, and yeah. a system of publicly administered um, property solutions for very poor people, I think, is warranted by the gleaning laws, just by natural law generally. People dying and starving and thus being exposed to the desire to steal is a is, is just foolish. Okay, now that doesn't justify any particular, and particularly our particular system of public welfare, which is not good. Not good. And you go back to the 19th century, who was the guy in Scotland? Chalmers, you know, where you, you had community based welfare and it was also tied to opportunities to work and the like. And he got it from some people in Germany. So, I mean, it was overwhelmed the publicly sponsored private welfare that had occupied from ancient through medieval even into well into modern into the 19th century that is publicly sponsored private welfare by private i mean community based not individual but private found itself overwhelmed with the industrialization and dislocations caused by uh, you know trade depressions and the like where the number of people being exposed to need all of a sudden just was just overwhelmed the systems that existed So we ended up gradually, particularly in Europe and then piecemeal here in America, coming up with a different way of approaching the problem of poverty, which is, I think, so I mean, I agree with the, this is problematic. So I agree with the conservatives that our current system is bad in many respects, in many respects. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that some system of public administered welfare is without any warranted own. If you reject a libertarian notion of property, and you see the government as an agent for good, in a particular time and circumstance, there may be a public welfare system. It should be, given the nature of government overreach, crowding out and a lot of other things, a sort of last resort that should be administered, if possible, through Catholic social services, Lutheran social services, if you're in Wisconsin, and you know other local social service organizations free to practice their religious beliefs in connection with that, such as Fulton. I mean, there's a lot of lawsuits going on about this. That is a way to do a much better way to do with it. But that there is a power of government to tax for that purpose, I think, is simply consistent with the natural law broadly and consistent with the gleaning laws and prohibitions against oppression. Look at Leviticus 19, 19, 11 and 13, I think are the verses, talk about oppression. Then look at uh, Isaiah chapter 10, where Isaiah excoriates the system for judges for writing unjust judgments. And depending on how you understand it, Lawyers writing unjust contracts. You know, I mean, it, it, the tr- tr- there are translation questions about exactly what Isaiah is getting at there. I mean, his basic point is clear. I read it that you can have, that he was excoriating lawyers as well as judges in his day, which is you know, a long time ago. So I think there are systems by which that the public basis for uh, some sort of welfare system is is warranted.
0: Then mm-hmm. we can make a transition, maybe to a more market economy. Thomas would have seen a marketplace, people would coin. Um, I maybe maybe Calvin would have seen this. I don't know how quickly the early modern period transitions to an idea where you have publicly traded companies where you own a share of capital and then. 19th century. the century. a bit and it just seems so foreign to any of this what would these guys make of, of
1: the modern stock exchange? boy I, I think that's that's very problematic I, I mentioned this morning i think at breakfast that the greatest invention of the 19th century is a general purpose business corporation that's when it came into being and that's created this against which marx and others reacted saying this absolute separation of ownership from participation as employees and as community at large, is problematic. And indeed, it's problematic. And I'd have no idea what the solution is. Now, the integralists, the Catholic integralists, they have a solution. We should get rid of it. And uh, uh, Jonathan Burnside teaches at law at, uh, I think it's University of Bristol. I think it's Burnside. Says, yeah, we should have a participatory economy. That is, we cannot separate ownership, as we do, ownership from management and ownership from, from losses. We separate ownership from... I mean, you get as a shareholder, you get the upside. As a shareholder, you get the downside to the amount of your investment, but no more. Well, that makes us more risk tolerant. We're much more willing to take risks economically when we know that our downside is limited to the amount of our original investment. Whereas if you're a partner, your downside is limited, unlimited. You could be on the hook for everything. And we should go back to that. That is such a massive reorganization of economic life that it's inconceivable to me what it would look like. I mean, you can say these things, but I, I don't know. So, going back to what would Calvin have thought of it, I think he would have been taken a very dim view. Westminster Divines would have taken a very dim view. Sure, there were corporate entities, or joint stock companies that existed in the 17th century, I mean the Virginia Company. Well, the companies that founded Massachusetts. You know, those were joint stock companies. They had investors back in London who were funding pilgrims, not much, but much more funding for the pilgrims, or excuse me, for the Puritans when they came over. They are investors and they wanted a return on their investment. Now, the Puritan investors tended to be more well-heeled and have a, certainly had a commitment to the Puritan project. So they weren't looking for the immediate returns, like they weren't looking for the quarterly financials in order to make a decision to pull the plug and the whole thing. But they were in it, and if they lost it, they would have lost more than their initial investment. So having some kind of separ- some kind of intermediation between the individual and the business enterprise is appropriate, but what we have today I think is simply inconceivable and would be found to be wanting by anybody until the 18th century and really until the 19th century. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to get involved.